Who loves sacrifices? I'm going to tell this joke just because I love it. We're starting the book of Vaikra, right? We're starting the book of Vaikra. So this newly married young Jewish kid uh, is talking to a friend, and the friend says, well, how, how, how's it going? How's, how's married life? And he says, absolutely incredible, beyond words. He said, really, it's going that good? It's going that well? Yeah, really is. Well, I mean, how? What's, a, what's, what's so good? And the newlywed says, my wife thinks I'm God. And he said, your wife thinks you're God? What does that mean? He said, every night at dinner, she brings me burnt offerings. <laughs> so you thought working through clasps and rings and curtains and silver sockets and bronze and inks and dyes of the tabernacle was something. You are in for some good stuff now. It's Leviticus, everybody's favorite talk. Liver, entrails, blood, guts, body parts, things on fire. You excited? Bulls, goats, rams, sheep, doves, and cereal offerings coming through to a Torah reading near you. This is Leviticus. All this and more in book three of the Torah. And for most people, this provides one of the most disconnected sections of the Bible imaginable. It is also one of the most misunderstood, misapplied, and incorrectly taught sections of text found in the Bible. And there is very, very, very little that we read, particularly in these sections of Leviticus where we are in the first seven chapters, that the Western religious mind can draw any application from. That is a very, very sad, but true, unfortunate thing. But you know, animal sacrifice? Seriously? How? How is that supposed to be relevant for us? Most people consider it absolutely barbaric, for one thing, not even kidding, liver, entrails, burning things. There are theological problems that seem to abound here for the modern reader, the modern Western Christian reader of the book of Leviticus. Number one, didn't Jesus do away with all of the sacrifices? That's a first problematic question that is often asked. Why would we even care Jesus did away with them? Wasn't he the last one that we ever needed? Well, Scripture would actually tell you something different than that. Scripture would tell you something different than that, not, not just Judaism. Scripture will tell you that the sacrifices, some, will be offered again in the third temple. And who will be ruling over and in the third temple in Jerusalem? Yeshua will be there doing that. Okay? Many, and, and guess what? God's going to be all good with that. He really is. And many, 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 many teachers vehemently deny the fact, not only that there will be sacrifices after Yeshua, but that there will even be a third temple to have them in, which I find remarkable. But the next big theological problem, didn't God hate the sacrifices? 
I mean, we read enough in the prophets, for instance, Isaiah 1, what are your many sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offering of rams and the fat of fattened cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires you this trampling of my courtyards? Do not go on bringing your worthless offerings. Incense is an abomination to me, God says. So you could kind of understand how someone would think God doesn't have any use for the sacrifices, right? He said it. Many, many, many teachers would aggressively tell you and agree with that text that says God hated the sacrifice, but that's because they don't understand the sacrifices. I rely on my... uh, theological mentor of sorts, Jonathan Sachs, may his name be forever a blessing, who says this about the sacrifices. The prophets did speak very, very poorly of something related to the sacrifices. Do you know what it was? Hypocrisy. That's what God hates. And Sachs wrote this. The thought that if I bring a sacrifice to God, he will overlook my other faults in effect, that I can bribe the judge of the earth, turns a sacred act into a pagan one and produces precisely the opposite result than the one intended by the Torah. It turns religious worship from a way to the the right and to the good into a way of easing the conscience of those who practice the wrong and the bad. Intention and mindset are a huge component of the sacrifices. And if you didn't have that, the prophets criticize you. Isaiah, Hosea, uh, Jeremiah, Amos, it's all over the place in the prophets. The idea that, that, that that turns it into a pagan one. Now that's an interesting thing. Isn't that, isn't this what pagans did? I mean, pagans, priests and temples and sacrifices, human sometimes, but a lot, of, a lot of blood and all that. And the th- thing is, Israel was not that far off in the sense of having a temple, priests, sacrifices, blood, all that stuff. So isn't that like pagan? But that's exactly where we need to stop and we need to focus in a little bit today. The intention of sacrifice starting with pagans. Because the majority of ancient Near Eastern cultures and outside of the ancient Near East sacrifice things. That's a very, very common thing. They were based on a totally different set of beliefs and the center, the the primary word is appeasement. Okay? That's the word. Appeasement for the sacrificial cults to pacify or placate by acceding to one's demand, to appease them. Their gods were angry. Bad things happen in your society when your god was angry. And you better figure out a way to make that god, the little gods or the big god that was over the little gods, they're all angry, they're all unpredictable, they change the system at any breath or whim, so you better have a lot of sacrifices and you better figure out how to appease their wrath. Right? Does that sound pretty good in terms of the pagan cults? Well, it sounds silly, right? I mean, what, what kind of God? What kind of God? What kind of relationship? Where's the love in that? 
And are you ready for the great irony? That's the Christian perspective on the sacrifices of Israel. I read this. And well, let me let me back up. There is no just like we can't just like we can't put Judaism into one basket. There's no such thing as Christianity. And I want to be very sensitive to that because that comes off as very critical to just group everything in. But there are predominant themes in Christian theology. And regarding the sacrifices, this is this is a, a, a sort of a good summation. All this to say that it belongs to the very nature of sacrifice, that it is directed first to God, that it is designed to influence God, to appease Him and satisfy His demand of judgment. And it is only with this satisfaction secured that the worshiper finds forgiveness. Now that sounds exactly what I just described about the pagan cult, doesn't it? That's a problem. Everyone knows that way of thinking and teaching. It's what it, it is what a large number of Christians think about when you talk about sacrifices and the sacrificial system. That God was, you know, we sinned. God is angry, very angry. He's full of wrath because the Bible says that. And Jesus came and took all that wrath and the angry, angry God poured it all out on him because Jesus is the lamb that takes away our punishment. And now God is appeased and everything will go well. That's sort of the picture, the key themes they repeat over and over in a lot of theology. Angry Old Testament God. Jesus, you know, Jews are trying, this is a big one now, Jews are trying to access heaven through the commandments and the sacrifices. That's the assumption. Totally wrong. Totally wrong. But that all of this, everything you're reading, whether it's the tabernacle, whether it's the tabernacle moving through the book of Numbers being set up in Exodus, or the service of the tabernacle that takes place in Leviticus, all of it, according to this theology, points one place. Where? Jesus. It's all about and prefigures only the work of Jesus on the cross. And it turns out that when he did his work on the cross, he came and, by this way of thinking, did away with all of it. And now instead of bulls and goats, we use his blood to appease God's wrath. Now, there are some, obviously, some problems that I would like to highlight for you today, if you'll give me the, the, the pleasure. First off, there is absolute and powerful truth in this sacrifice metaphor used throughout the New Testament. Jesus Christ was not a sacrifice. He is not a Levitical sacrifice. And you need to, li you need to listen to the Hebrews, uh, the, the Better Covenant series that we did to really understand some of those things. But the metaphor 
Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed, gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, the lamb which takes away sin. The book of Hebrews, especially with all of its temple imagery, describes Yeshua, among all things, as a sacrifice to top all things. Okay? So, so the metaphor, you really need, you know, to, you have to understand that these are first century Jewish authors writing in context for their readers. It would be like me saying something about, um, you know, Amazon and, and expecting them to understand what the heck I was talking about. They have, they have no context, but you do for Amazon. But he's using these societal norms to help them understand all of these authors who are making these sacrifice metaphors, okay? He is. I say this a lot. I never want to minimize the work of Yeshua. I won't. It's, it is our eternal salvation. He is our Savior, sent by God. Take away the sins of the world that we might find peace eternally in the world to come with God. That's an established reality of Yeshua. And again, Figuratively, when talking about the sacrifice of Yeshua and the metaphor there, we in essence can take hold of him. We can lay our hands on him in a sense, confess our sins, our, our, our offer our repentance, and then we believe that God receives his prayer, his sacrifice on our behalf, and we receive forgiveness and acceptance. So, listen. The sacrifice metaphor of Yeshua, absolutely and totally understand it. But wrath, angry God, hates his people, has to be satisfied, satiated, appeased with blood. We just spent four weeks talking about Yeshua and the restoration of justice for mankind, that he paid a very high cost, doing for us what we were incapable of doing. But the bigger story is that he empowered us. He restored justice. And are you ready for this? This is very, very big. He reconnected sinners with God. And if you were a Gentile... You had no connection. And he made it possible. Read Ephesians for follow-up if you need that. Ephesians 2. Yeshua made a connection, reconnection possible. Now, drawing near. Lehakriv in Hebrew. That is the word which is translated to, to you know, sacrifice, a korban. Lehakriv, to, to offer something as a sacrifice. But you know what it actually means? It means to bring something near. It means to bring something close. And the key element is not really giving something up, which really is what sacrifice usually means. It's about bringing something close to God. And so we can understand in that, under, in that story, that definition, that understanding of the word, why Yeshua was often referred to in the sacrifice language. It did not have anything to do with him literally replacing or ending the sacrificial system. Did you hear me? I'll say it again. 
The sacrifice metaphor and him as a sacrifice has nothing to do with him literally ending the sacrificial system. But instead, bringing something close to God. You know what he brought close to God? You. Le Hakriv. Yeshua made a way for you to draw near to God that did not exist was not going to be possible. Okay? But beyond that. Okay, that, that's sort of, that was almost tangential, I'm afraid, but it's, it's important to understand this. But in the bigger picture in terms of Leviticus and the wider understanding of the believing community regarding the purpose, the validity, the value of sacrifice in God's eyes, I want to ask you this. Is it conceivable that this divinely inspired text that we run our lives by, and the whole, the whole Bible, for that matter, which contains volumes of information about preparing a space for him, about the service of the priest in that space, about how people should approach him, and ultimately, right now, where we find ourselves in the book of Torah and Leviticus, seven chapters literally about bulls, rams, priests, blood, liver, all the intestines, all of this stuff is in there, okay? I get it. It's difficult subject matter. But is it conceivable that God spent all of this time explaining all of this only to then say, oops, I made a terrible mistake. I didn't mean any of that. You shouldn't take that literally. Is it even possible that, that if we hold God and the Bible in the high regard we say we do, is it, is it reasonable to suggest, well, that all doesn't matter? That was all a mistake. Well, here's a problem. For one thing, his, his, Yeshua's followers didn't get that message. Originally, like not long after he died in the book of Acts, chapter 2, you remember what they were doing? They were going daily to the temple. Do you know what was happening in the temple? Prayers and sacrifices. And there's not one place where the disciples tell them, no, 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 you can't go back there now. Jesus, Jesus, stop that. As a matter of fact, we read in Acts 3, Peter and John are going where? Up to the temple when? At the ninth hour. What was happening at the ninth hour? The evening commanded daily sacrifice. It was a very, very special time of prayer. Remember Cornelius in Acts 10, God-fearer, the first real like, big part of what was happening with the Gentiles? Remember when he received his vision? When he was praying, it says he received a vision. When was he praying? At the ninth hour. Why was he praying at the ninth hour? Because that's when the evening sacrifice was offered in the temple and it was a very auspicious time because the sacrifices mattered even after Yeshua died and resurrected. So they didn't get that message that's been passed down for the last 1900 years about how none of it matters. But here's a real big problem with misunderstanding sacrifices. You remember the Isaiah text I started with where God's very, very critical of the sacrifices. Here's some more Isaiah. That was Isaiah 1. This is what it says. 
Isaiah 1, what are your many sacrifices to me? I take no pleasure in blood, bulls, lambs, goats, your incense is an abomination. Remember that chapter? 1. Isaiah 56 says this. Also, listen carefully, all Gentiles in the room. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to attend to his service and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath so as not to profane it and holds firmly to my covenant, even those... I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. You ready? Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for who? All nations, all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel, I will yet gather others to them, those already gathered. These are foreigners in the messianic kingdom, participating in the temple service, and God says, hey, I love you. I'll take your burnt offerings. So I have a problem with someone who would say, they're not going to happen. You, as a Gentile disciple of Yeshua, who's been brought near to the covenants of Israel, should have also a real problem with someone telling you that these books and these processes and these offices and all this stuff don't matter to you because they actually do. But I'll get us out of here. There are, you know, well, actually, how about this one? I have to. I'm sorry. I have to. It's just so easy. Zechariah 14. Remember what Zechariah 14 talks about? It's, it's, there's been this big battle and all this bad stuff's happened, but now guess what? It's time to party in Jerusalem. And we're all going up for what in Jerusalem? Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, Zechariah 14. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that came against Jerusalem, where are you going? You're going to go up to Jerusalem year to year to worship the King, the Lord of Armies. And to celebrate the Feast of Booths. On that day they will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. Cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord of armies. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. That point is made, right? Now there are differences in the, in the third temple and the millennial sacrifices. Just for fun, today for your homework, read Ezekiel 40 through 48. And then come back and give me the full, give me, explain it all to me. About how the temple and the sacrifices were eliminated. Here's the, here's the bottom line. God delights in sacrifice. And it can't just be about blood and wrath and judgment. For goodness sakes, there's a peace offering. There's a shlomim, right? Shlomim, that's the word. My, yeah. The shalomim, the shlomim. The peace offering. The, there's a thanksgiving offering. Where when you just feel really good and you're like, Baruch Hashem, I love you, God. Here. Here's this, and everyone in the room, come on over, let's give the priest theirs, and we're going to eat the rest, because I love God. And he loves me, 
That's a, a sacrifice. And listen, God, God, God describes the, the sacrifices as a reach nihoach. You know what that is? That's a pleasing aroma. Now listen, I like a, I like a smoked brisket on the, in the smoker as anyone else does. I love the smell of it. This has to be more than barbecue that we're talking about here. A pleasing aroma to God. Leviticus, first book taught to Jewish children. Why? Because as the sacrifices are pure, so are the children. Let them come and learn. That's what the Midrash says. Leviticus, we learn about the festivals of God, our sacred meeting times with God that he commanded from before the foundations of the earth are spelled out for us. Where? In the book of Leviticus. If you can't get past the first seven chapters, which most people do, it's no wonder we don't celebrate the holidays anymore. Nobody made it to 23. We learn about atonement in Exodus, I mean, in the first, uh, in, in chapter 16. We learn about how to eat in Leviticus. We learn about how to treat people in Leviticus. We learn the second most important commandment from our Master Yeshua in Leviticus. And we should just stop calling it Leviticus. That's a dumb name. Vaikra, and he called. That's what it means. And he called to Moses, Vayikra. There's a great sermon in that, too, about the little Aleph that you find in the Torah scroll. But I actually gave that sermon sometime. Listen to it. From the macro view, Leviticus is all about this instruction from God. This one instruction. Be holy, for I am holy. Well, I eat, I eat biblically because, um, you know, pork, they eat their own feces and shrimp, they eat stuff on the bottom. That's probably true, but God said, be holy for I am holy. That's why he said, do that. It's not, I mean, those other things probably are there too. But the theme of Leviticus is be holy for I am holy. Okay? So... We started that book last week, actually. That was chapter, that was Vayikra, the beginning. Now we're in Sav in Hebrew, which means command. And I would really love to draw from some, some Christian tradition and some Christian teachers to tell you more about all of this stuff that's really worth knowing. But I couldn't find any. And I'm certain that there are some. But I couldn't find any, and I didn't have the time to do an extensive search because, you know, as I've already laid out for you here, all of this is sort of done away with. So why would you waste the time if you're a pastor or, you know, a Christian teacher, other than just to say it points to Jesus? But we've identified that that might not be all that it does. So I'm going to do something I like to do, and that is draw from the traditional sources in Judaism to teach you about the sacrifices the rabbis, I'm a fan. The sages. And I'll share this. Why does this matter? Why does God spend time talking about something that seems so incredibly hard to relate to? Why? 
Well, I want to give you an example, one I'm expanding on from Rabbi Gordon, who teaches uh, just a wonderful Torah sage. There's a wife, a wife. She says to her husband, I want flowers. And he says, flowers? You don't need flowers. Flowers are silly. Flowers are expensive. Flowers die very quickly. You don't want flowers. Now, I do want flowers. I want you to bring me flowers. He says, I'll tell you what. No flowers, but I'll get you a new weed eater. I'll get you a, I'll get you a new circular saw. Something you can put to use. You know, let me get you something like that. I want flowers. But, but they're irrational. Flowers don't make sense. You don't want flowers. I want flowers. So he gets her some flowers. And from this simple and seemingly confusing, irrational, silly behavior, action, uh, in his assessment, he brings them to her. And her face lights up. And she takes the bouquet and she smiles and she looks and she smells. And the smile's there and it's a, it's a, it's a reach nihoach. It's a pleasant aroma. And that smile and that reaction and all that happens around the flowers that the husband brought to his wife are much more than, mmm, these smell good. Though the husband cannot see it in his act that does not make sense to him or cannot be rationalized or justified financially, he's bringing joy to the most important part of his life. To her. And he actually, he's showing, he's demonstrating her love to her and for her. And in the process, as they say, when mama's happy, everybody's happy. He's deriving a benefit for himself, though he's too dense to see and understand all that's happening. He's bringing this joy. They are, through this seemingly senseless act, connected, reconnected, deriving benefit from one another. She asked, he did. And sometimes in your relationship with God, that's the way that works too. Sometimes you just don't get to know everything about why and what you do. He asks, you do. Most people don't like that part of the equation. But it's a grave, grave, grave error to imagine that anything I'm talking about was about going to heaven when they died. This world is here. It exists now. And God has always wanted us to thrive here and be connected to him in it. So, this matters to God. Sacrifices mattered and matter to God, and will matter to God. 
But ultimately, what we'll find next week is that God actually had you in mind. He had you in mind. It's less about his pleasing aroma and what he needs from barbecued bulls. He had you in mind, and he does that a lot, you know. He really does. He has you in mind. And that if we, can't, if we can see the bigger picture beyond the veins and the fat and the organs and the burnt offering, those animals actually have a very, very powerful connection to you that you should know for you today as a disciple of Yeshua. So if they mattered to God, the sacrifices that is, and everything we're talking about in the Torah, if it mattered to God, it should matter to you today and next week when we keep going. All right? Shabbat Shalom.